welcome to Crime Lines. This is our annual Q&A, and I've got some really involved questions this year, so go ahead and settle in. We're going to be here for a while. We will start with a review of 2021 and any changes I have for 2022. Then we'll do questions about true crime, and then I'll move into the questions that were about podcasting. I will leave timestamps in the episode descriptions, show notes area, so that if you find the podcast behind the scenes questions boring or you are more interested in that and you want to skip the true crime part, you can easily do that. I'll be talking about research, sponsorships, Patreon, and all that good stuff that 90% of podcast listeners probably don't care about. So let's first do our review of 2021. It was a good year for the podcast, lots of growth, great feedback from the 12 Days of Crime Lines. It's not just the 12 Days of Crime Lines that I have gotten good feedback on. It's been on my other episodes this year, particularly when I add a little bit of extra information or commentary that you may not be getting elsewhere when you listen to these cases. I do know it is a mixed bag when it comes with the history-heavy episodes. I will say the vast majority of the feedback is positive. Multiple people have told me that my podcast is the most amount of Indigenous history they've ever heard, and I'll tell you it's the most I've ever learned. So it does seem like a no-brainer to keep providing that for people who want it. It's pretty easy to skip ahead since I do kind of front-load that, so you can just skip to where the case discussion starts if that's all you're interested in, and that's totally fine. Something that did happen in 2021 that isn't directly podcast-related is that meetups started again. Kansas City, Savannah, Seattle, Fort Worth. I've met up with people in all of those places since July. I do hope to keep the in-person events going in 2022, pandemic allowing, and because of that exact issue, they probably will not start up again until spring, probably at the earliest, because we are currently about to be in quite the wave this winter. And while the area around me is not locking down, our families decided to step back a little bit and not travel or see as many people right now. But hopefully that is like the other times we've locked down due to COVID waves. Hopefully this is temporary. Hannah asked if I will be at the CrimeCon in Las Vegas, and the answer is not technically. I will be in Vegas that same exact weekend with friends. Friends who happen to be other podcasters who are also not going to CrimeCon. We are in the area because we will be doing free meetups after hours with some of the podcasters who are going to be at CrimeCon. There will be plenty of chances to meet your favorite podcasters in Vegas that weekend, whether you go to CrimeCon or not. Other meetups that are being planned right now include Anchorage, Alaska in early June, very likely New York City in early July. If I have enough people in Connecticut interested, I may do a small coffee meetup while I'm there visiting family 4th of July weekend. It'll probably be Milford or Middletown. Those are the two cities I'm bouncing between. Other possible events are just too far out to plan or announce, but if you ever come to Kansas City, you can just shoot me an email and we can meet up for coffee somewhere if our schedules align. 
I will apologize if my voice sounds a little off. I'm not really sure how much is being picked up by the microphone or by your ear, but I am recovering from a little bit of a cold, so I may sound a little sinusy, and I do apologize, but I can't really put off recording this or I would never get it out in time. So I decided to just go for it, and I hope it isn't too distracting that I sound like this. So let's get into the Q&A because I did get some really in-depth questions and I've split it into two sections. True crime-related questions first, since they're of general interest to everyone, and then we'll do the podcast-related questions where, like I said, we're talking process, ads, and sponsorships. I'll even let you know what's going on with YouTube. That part is pretty long, so check those timestamps in the description if you're an aspiring podcaster and you just want to skip to that part. Let's get into those true crime topics. April decided to really get us started here and asked me what I thought of the Jesse Smollett verdict. For those who don't know, this is the actor who reported an assault against himself, a hate crime by two men who used homophobic and racist language towards him. He did say one of them said something about MAGA country, you know, the Make America Great Again line from Donald Trump's campaign. There were media reports the men were wearing red hats that go with that, but that's actually misinformation and it did not come from any statement from Smollett. So we do have some issues with the misinformation out there, so that's always a problem. Now, the two men who were brothers were arrested and testified against Jesse Smollett, claiming it was a hoax that they were paid to participate in. I will say that the jury deliberated for nine hours and really went into everything. The juror that I saw speak out said that the jury didn't really argue. They just went through every single thing and found what they called overwhelming evidence that Smollett had created a hoax when he reported the alleged hate crime to the police. So I am going to back the jury's verdict in the sense that they spent way more time analyzing this than I did. But I do have some questions lingering. Like, for one, if he was going to fake an attack, why not fake it from the start? It's not that hard to hit yourself in the face. People literally stab themselves to fake an attack. So why bring these two guys into it at all? There were no witnesses and no security cameras capturing the attack. So Smollett could have literally made the whole thing up without having to pay people to actually attack him. And these two brothers are, i they look like they lift weights. They're pretty big guys. I would not want to risk having them punch me a little too hard. But that's just me. It's also odd to me that Smollett actually wasn't the one who initially reported the attack. It was a friend who did. And the friend said Smollett didn't want it reported. The police didn't show up until seven hours after the incident because of that. So if this was some hoax to boost his public profile or make a political statement, why didn't he call 911 from where he said he was allegedly attacked? Why didn't he follow this through from the start? Now, I will say a lot of the evidence does come down to the testimony of the two brothers, who I think had a motive to lie because they were caught with a lot of evidence as being in the area and possibly the ones who attacked Smollett. Now, on the other side of things, why would these guys attack him? 
The defense said it was because they didn't like him, but according to Smollett, he had a sexual relationship with one of them, though they did hide it from the other one, so there could be some internalized homophobia going on there. But the three of them had been together days before without issue. And if Smollett was telling the truth, the money he paid them wasn't for the role in this hoax, but to train him for some music video. Why would they attack a well-paying, somewhat high-profile client who might be able to bring them more business from his Hollywood contacts? I'm just not sure their motive here. Now, there are some other little oddities that I feel don't entirely fit for me, but I do lean towards supporting the jury verdict because they did go through every single piece and discuss it for nine hours, which I will admit is way more time than I spent on this. I will be interested to see Jesse Smollett's appeal that his lawyer said they will be filing. So speaking about odd cases, Jennifer and Ashley both asked what my top case would be to solve, and I have two answers. I have my selfish, curiosity-driven answer, and then I have my more altruistic answer. So curiosity-driven case would be Sherry Papini, the mom who was allegedly kidnapped, beaten, branded, and starved before showing back up. The police have said there was additional sensitive information that is being withheld from the public, so there's even more, I assume, to back up this idea that she was kidnapped. But honestly, it really sounded like she ran off for a few weeks if it was not for these injuries. They were pretty bad. And if she had voluntarily left, and that person is the one who hurt her, Why wouldn't she tell the truth when she came back? Why make up this very bizarre story? That story of what she said happened seems so hard to believe that it was two women who did this to her, kidnapped her, there was likely a man involved. Now, I want to know what really happened, or even just peek at the case file, because Sherry Papini's case has been living rent-free in my head for five years. I'm not saying I do or don't believe her. I think that might be why I want the answer so bad is because I don't know what I think. But the case I really want solved is the Mary Boyle disappearance. Mary was a little girl when she went missing. Her twin sister has a theory that it was a family member who was responsible. It has destroyed her relationship with her mother, who believes this family member is innocent. Just for the sake of them being able to heal from the discord and getting those answers, I really do hope it is solved and they can make up before that opportunity is taken from them because Mary's mother is in her mid-70s. Hannah asked to hear my abbreviated take on some of the unsolved mysterious cases that do get a lot of coverage that wouldn't make it on crime lines for that reason. Specifically, she listed her pet cases, which are Brandon Lawson, Brian Schaefer, Dior Kuntz, and Matrice Richardson. It is true, I avoid a lot of the cases you've heard over and over again. It's just that so often I don't have anything to add to what's already out there, and I want to respect your time listening to the show every week. But I do get asked, not infrequently, to at least give my opinion or commentary on some of these cases. Now, not to sound like I'm shilling my Patreon all the time, but I did just release an episode where I talked with two other podcasters, Laura from The Fall Line and One Strange Thing, and Nina from Already Gone and Don't Talk to Strangers, 
about four cases, Lizzie Borden, the Sauter children, Jean-Baudet Ramsey, and Maura Murray. I do have plans to do a few more of those in the future, as my patrons have asked me to do more, and I will try to rope some of my podcast friends into that. But I can give you my quick rundown on these that you specifically named. These are just my opinions, and on all of them, I could be easily persuaded in a different direction. I don't have a theory that I'm super attached to. And if you ask me about these exact cases next year, I may actually have a different answer. So Brandon Lawson is one where I am split on whether I think he ran off in a paranoid state or if he was actually in danger from someone. But I do think those are the two most likely scenarios I have heard, you know, police conspiracy rumors, and I'm not leaning towards any of those. Brian Schaefer, I honestly don't know. For a while, I leaned towards the construction accident wrong exit theory, but I just don't think that's very likely that he wouldn't have been found in that scenario. So I don't know, but I do think foul play needs to be on the table. Dior Coons, I think he got lost in the woods, but the strength of my opinion on that isn't nearly 100%. It's probably. 51%. It's not uncommon in situations like this for people to downplay how long a child was either unsupervised or poorly supervised. Obviously, since my confidence in my opinion isn't that strong, I do understand people's suspicions regarding that camping trip. I share those suspicions, or at least some of them. And I think Matrice Richardson is a homicide case. I think she was in a vulnerable state and someone took advantage of that. I am not going to say it was a police officer, but I'm not going to say it wasn't, but I'm also not going to say it was. I personally think it is very possible, maybe even very likely, that someone at or near the police station that night saw her walk off and offered her a ride, and that person had other intentions. So Heather asked, which episodes have I gotten the most feedback on after I've posted them, either good or bad? And I don't even have to think about this one. It's Bobby Joe Stinnett case, and a lot of that had to do with timing. My timing was accidental. That episode, I wasn't actually supposed to do it. I was supposed to do the episode before it about the other cousins in the family, one who was murdered and one who went missing. That's what I was going to cover, and another podcast that is now defunct was going to cover the Bobby Joe Stinnett case. This was going to be a crossover, cross-promotion opportunity for us, but when that fell through, I ended up doing both sides of the crossover. Due to that delay, as we figured out how things were going to happen, it meant the episode came out right as Lisa Montgomery was set to be executed, and Lisa Montgomery being Bobby Joe's murderer. Because it was in the news, that episode got more listens than my average episodes do, therefore more people voiced their opinions on the case. It is my all-time most highly downloaded Crime Lines episode, even though it's been out for under a year, and I have episodes that have been out for two and a half years. The other reason I think this episode got a lot of feedback was because it dealt with a lot of heavy issues, and I think that's what people were responding to. None of the feedback was critical of my case presentation. 
But there were people on opposite sides about whether Lisa's background was enough of a mitigating factor to spare her life. And of course, I'm anti-death penalty. I'm very open about that. So people just disagreed with me on that. And I don't want to ever have a podcast where I give opinions and you're not allowed to disagree with me. So I don't see having a different opinion as I have as negative feedback. So Jennifer asked me what case got me hooked on true crime. I grew up in a true crime house. My mom had every unsavory paperback. She had court TV on loop. And I read some of them when I was far too young. But the case that really got me into true crime was Aton Pates. I read about this when I was in the seventh grade. And having up to that point only read the most sensationalist true crime paperbacks, this was a case presentation in this little write-up on it that wasn't tabloid at all. It was an actual factual and compelling telling of what happened. And so I connected with it in a different way. And I think that is what got me interested in true crime beyond the tabloid aspect of it, beyond the entertainment part of it. So I definitely credit that case. Now, Peggy and Jennifer both asked what podcasts I listen to, what I look forward to. And I've realized that this year, my podcast listening has changed. And it probably started a couple years ago as I collected more podcasts to listen to than I had hours in a week to listen. So I started listening to shows based on the topic rather than listening to every episode week after week like I used to do. The two shows, though, that I still listen to nearly every episode are The Generation Y and The Trail Went Cold. Other favorites that are one case per episode that I listen to at least most of the episodes are already gone and unresolved. Everything else I listen to is generally based on the topic. I do listen to those serialized podcasts like Defense Diaries and True Crime BS. I don't miss episodes on those or else I'd be really confused. I also really like the one-off ones like Over My Dead Body, Dr. Death, and some of those other one-tree long-form shows. I mean, sometimes they release multiple seasons, but it's like eight episodes and then they move on and you don't hear from them for months and months and months. I listen to enough of them that I actually do pay for Wondery Plus. I like getting the episodes ad-free. Sometimes you'll get the whole season at once and you can just binge it. But I basically finish those so quickly and then I'm on to the next thing that I don't even think I could name all of the ones I've listened to this year. I don't feel particularly attached to them or to the hosts the way I do with indie shows where the hosts are more personal and I can tweet at them and they respond. It's just a little bit different of a vibe. So I kind of have a little bit more of a loyalty to shows like Already Gone, Canadian True Crime, Court Junkie, Trail One Cold because of that personal connection. So Jennifer asked if time and energy were not an issue, what case would I want to cover? And this is another easy question for me because it's been in the back of my mind for years, really. In 1989 and 1990, four indigenous men died in Lawrence, Kansas, and all four deaths were ruled accidents. I found the cases while I was working on a different case for a Patreon episode back in early 2020. It's something I would still be interested in pursuing if time and energy were there, 
because I do think at least two, if not three, of those cases were likely not accidents. I'm hopeful that I will have time in a couple of years when my boys are a little older to explore that. Lawrence, Kansas is not that far from me, so it's not like I have to travel across the country to do on-the-ground research. But again, it's far enough away that trying to do everything within the hours daycare is open makes it a little difficult. Ashley mentioned something that I have brought up in a previous Q&A, and it had to do with being so immersed in true crime and how that impacts me as a parent. Ashley said that what I mentioned was actually very helpful, so it would be good to mention it again. And I'll say that it is because I am fact-based and research-based, I know that humans are bad at risk assessment. We lose sight of our kids for 10 seconds at the mall, and we think they must have been kidnapped, when that is actually the least likely outcome. The truth is they were in more danger in the car on the drive to the mall than they were because I turned my back for a moment. Through my research, even though I'm looking at the worst that can happen to a child, I actually see how safe our kids really are when we're talking about things like stranger abductions. And that does help calm my fears and my knee-jerk reaction to think the worst. When we see news of a kid going missing on their walk home from school, you'll see comments on Facebook or on the comment section of the articles, things like, why was that 10-year-old walking home from school alone? They should have been picked up by a parent as though millions of 5- to 12-year-olds don't walk home every day without incident. The truth is, the child was statistically more at risk if the parent picked them up in a car and drove them home. I hate going back to the car thing, but I think that is the best example of something we do every day that we don't consider a risk that is a greater risk than all of these unfounded worries we have. I have all those worries too, trust me. I'm not saying I don't have them, but I can stop that from consuming me and stop that from passing my anxieties onto my children. Pam asked me how you would get started researching a cold case when you want to find more information, and the case she's specifically looking at is a missing family member who went missing in the 30s or 40s. Now, when you are looking that far back, I recommend the newspaper archives. I use newspapers.com. It is a paid subscription. I think it's worth it. You could always pay for a month or do a free trial just to see if you can find anything. If you can't get the free trial or whatever and you want me to do a search on it, just send me whatever information you have and I'll look and let you know if it's worth diving more into if there's nothing, or if there's a few articles, I'll just clip them for you. Now, the other thing that you can do is call the police department that would have investigated the case. You may not know because of how things restructure, so I would recommend calling and contacting both the city police and then the county sheriff. I mean, I'm assuming you're in the United States. If you're not, I don't know how it works, but I would call any anyone who would have jurisdiction. So we're also talking state troopers, depending on the state. So I would contact them over the phone or through email first. If it was a more recent case, I would say just file a Freedom of Information Act request 
But since this is so far back, I would call and ask them if they even have the files from that far back and if they're accessible. Now, if they are, they can help you know how to request the information formally. They probably can't tell you if they have that exact file or not over the phone, but they can at least let you know if they have files from that time frame or if it would be a waste of time filing a Freedom of Information Act request. So hopefully that will help get you started. Feel free to email me if you have any other questions or you need help with that. So that is the end of our true crime section of the Q&A. We are now moving on to the podcast behind the scenes. So Laura asked me how I decide which cases I cover on Crime Lines versus putting them on the YouTube channel. So when I was putting videos up on YouTube, which I'll get to in a minute, but when I was doing that, I generally looked for cases that have a lot of visuals, whether that's pictures or security footage, something I could easily obtain and not deal with uh, copyright issues with them. So I'm definitely wanting things that are coming from the police, like surveillance videos or crime scene photos. I would also try to pick shorter cases for YouTube since I found those do better over there. Podcast audiences have more of a crossover, in my view, with audiobook listeners. The longer, the better. YouTube, it's more like TV. People prefer shorter content. That's at least what the analytics seem to be telling me. And Brian asked me how I managed to get everything done and listed off several of the things I've actively worked on in the podcast space. And the truth is, I don't do most of them anymore. I'm not writing for any other podcasts. I write for Crime Lines and sometimes for Rusty Hinges. For those who have been asking, we are bringing Rusty Hinges back, but I don't know for how long it's up in the air, but we're going to try to bring it back at least for a six to eight episode season, and then we'll reevaluate. And that brings us to YouTube, which Brian also mentioned as something I was doing. I did spend a lot of time in 2021 building crime lines, and part of that was that I expanded to YouTube with original content for YouTube, not just podcast episodes uploaded there. And while I did like making video content for YouTube and ended up getting some really good momentum, it just turned out not to be something I could sustain week after week while still delivering high-quality content on the podcast. And the podcast is my priority. The thing I would need to make YouTube work, frankly, is to hire a researcher. I get people who email me with some frequency always offering to work for free, and while I do appreciate the offers, I make money doing this. And if I get paid, then everyone working on the show should get paid. I have very strong feelings about creators who use a fan base as free labor. I do feel incredibly fortunate that I've grown crime lines to the point that this is what I do for a living. Podcasting is my day job. And I'm never for a second unappreciative of that. That said, I don't quite make enough that I can afford to hire someone to help me out on a regular enough basis for YouTube to work. I don't know if any of you have read Barbara Kingsolver. She's a fantastic author. She once wrote about the school bus being her muse because as a working mother, 
She only had the hours between the bus pickup and drop-off to write. And that's the reality of where I am right now, time-wise. And here's the interesting thing. In the last six months or so that I cut out everything except working on Crime Lines, the podcast, the show has grown after plateauing, dipping during the pandemic, recovering from that, plateauing again. It finally grew by about 3,000 regular listeners. My social media interaction is up. My Patreon has grown and my Patreon interaction is up. We're chatting in the comments more than ever. Maybe it's because I'm making better content by focusing on the podcast. Maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe the timing is a coincidence. But it still feels like this is the right way to go to both have life balance and deliver the best podcast I can. So I'm going to stick with that in 2022. I am going to focus on just making a great podcast. That's what I'm here for. And that leads us into questions about 2022. And the Unseen podcast asked me, how do I manage my workload with time for family and so on? And the answer is, frankly, I don't, or at least I didn't do it well. Back to that Barbara Kingsolver quote, I need to make my workload fit into the school day. And that's leading to the main change in 2022, which is I'm going to take some time off, which I rarely did in 2021. Rather than do a season break, I will be doing four weekly episodes, and then I'll take a week off, and then four more episodes, and then another week off, and so on. The weeks off will be scattered throughout the year. Hopefully, you'll hardly notice them. I will use those weeks to get ahead on scripts so that when I do things like take a vacation with my family, I can take a couple weeks off then and use the content I prepared in advance. But you are still going to get at least 52 episodes in the year because the 12 Days of Crime Lines got so much positive feedback. I am planning on it again next year. And then there will be some bonus episodes that show up in the main feed randomly. There'll be episodes where I invite another person in the true crime field to discuss a case. Usually it'll be another podcaster. The current plan is to have them discuss a case that I cover. So this will be like an after show format. They will always be someone who can bring something specific to the topic. I have plans for someone who knows the specifics of a January case very, very well. I have plans to have a defense attorney podcaster come on to discuss a case that has some complicated legal issues, and I think those are going to be really interesting discussions and content to provide. Now, these episodes are going to literally just show up when I have the time for them. No guarantee. You may get two in one month and then none for three months. I have no idea. We're just going to see what happens. Again, I'm focusing on making crime lines, both the main feed and the Patreon feed, the best they can be. I think these after shows, no matter how scattered and random they seem, will bring more to the table than I'm currently bringing, and I'm excited for that. In a lot of the questions about the podcast and how I podcast, the fact that I have six children has come up. And how do I balance that? And I do need to clarify that all of my kids are not actually children. I'm 42. I had my first four children by the time I was 26. 
We then took a break because having four kids was a lot. And then we decided, what's two more? So now we have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. My four-year-old does have the personality that makes him more like two regular children, but it's not like I have six little kids. I'll never say teenage children are easier than toddlers because I definitely know better than that, but they can at least get their own food without interrupting me while I'm working. So that helps. They're older and more self-sufficient. The real reason I can get the podcast done is that it is my day job. I, again, cannot tell you how thankful I am every day for that. It's the people who are podcasting as a hobby around family and work obligations. Those are the ones who should be giving time management tips, not me. Valerie asked what made me decide to start a podcast and how I came to the decision to continue as a solo act when my co-hosted show ended. So I used to homeschool my older kids. They all ended up going to school. I got bored home alone with a two-year-old, and I googled how to start a podcast. I knew nothing when I got started, so don't think having a background in audio and writing in anything is required for this. If you have a computer, you can get yourself a decent microphone. You can have a podcast. You learn as you go. I was podcasting as a hobby by myself for about six months when a friend named Tim asked if anyone wanted to start a true crime podcast with him. Allie and I, who were both friends with him online, both joined him in making Insight. Tim ended up dropping out early with Insight after about three episodes, so Allie and I ended up keeping the show going by ourselves. We didn't know each other more than passing posts online, and then we ended up making a podcast together for two and a half years. When Insight ended, I was going to stop hosting podcasts entirely and just focus on behind the scenes. I had signed a contract with Parkcast at that point. I had Canadian True Crime interested in me working for her. Court Junkie was interested. And it looked like I could just make that my full-time job. Before one of the last episodes of Insight, I didn't have a co-host at the last minute, so I ended up recording it by myself and put it out there. Other than the fact that I talked too quickly, I got really great feedback on that, and that's when it first occurred to me that maybe I could carry on the show by myself. And I also had some other podcasters in my ear basically telling me they thought I was making an emotional decision to quit rather than a rational one. Whenever you're ending a professional relationship, a professional project, you can have mixed emotions. There could be good and bad with it. So I was advised by them to take some time to decide. I'm impulsive, so I said, absolutely not. I don't need time. I know what I'm doing. However, from the time we decided Insight was ending until the last episode was released was probably seven to eight weeks. Emotions calmed down a lot in that amount of time. So my friends were right. I was wrong. Once things calmed down, I realized I should go ahead with crime lines. What was the worst that could happen? I didn't want to do it anymore, and I ended another show. Perfect. When was I going to have the momentum of an established show like Insight behind me when starting a podcast? If I waited a year, I wouldn't have that momentum. I wouldn't have that audience still there ready to jump into something new with me. So I decided to go ahead. I needed to do it. 
see how it went, and it worked out pretty well, even though I have to say Crime Lines is a whole lot more work than Insight. Insight did three episodes a month, and we switched off researching, writing, and editing. Crime Lines is weekly, and I'm doing it all myself. So I more than doubled my workload, but I wouldn't change a thing. This has worked out better than I could have ever imagined. Kathleen asked about my background and how that has shaped my commentary on true crime. I will say I grew up in a working-class family in Connecticut, which is a state that is known for being wealthy. The impact of socioeconomic status has just always been something I've noticed, even within members of my family. It's probably one of the reasons I went so hard in the Jack family episode about them getting in a stranger's car with their children. They had a promise of work, which meant a promise of food and bills being paid. So this idea that people sipping $6 lattes as they plan their next vacation would judge the Jack family for what choice they made when they had so few options, that really got to me. There are also many moments in my childhood where I felt very small and very vulnerable and subject to the whims of unpredictable people. Maybe one day I'll get into it. I'll host a podcast where I just trauma dump on you for four hours. But until then, I'll just say that I think that definitely is part of why I am empathetic for pretty much everyone's childhood trauma. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with that when we're talking about killers, but it's just where I am and who I am. I also think it's why I get riled up in episodes where someone is in power or they're in a privileged position and they use that to destroy another person's life, whether they're the perpetrator or, like in the Pete Coons episode, they're the prosecutor. But I think the main thing that shapes my commentary is how much I read. Whether it's fictional novels, memoirs, essays, news articles, I'm really interested in profiles of humans and human behavior and human emotion. I listen to people when they tell me about their experiences in life, particularly if it's something I'm clueless to and I'm learning about. I have learned that the only time I need to open my mouth in some situations is to ask more questions, not to give my opinion. I'm also pretty naturally inclined to hear the other side of a debate or an opinion, not rhetoric. I, I, don't, I don't want rhetoric. I don't want an, an opinion that's not based on something. But if someone has an information or research-based opinion, even if it's contrary to mine, I do want to hear it. I can handle the cognitive dissonance. Now, this is another reason it's important for me to focus on crime lines and not divide my attention between a million projects. I need to be sure I have the time to educate myself before I present a case where, let's say it's mental health. Mental health is a major component. I can actually put harm out into the world if I screw that up. I need to make sure I have time in my life to continue reading and listening and expanding so I can make Crime Lines a better show. Now, another question on my background, Suze asked what my educational professional background is that got me into true crime research, and also if I've had elocution training since I do speak clearly. Now, for my education and professional background, I literally have none. I don't have a college degree. I went to college, 
went to a bunch of them. I majored in a bunch of things. But I also had a lot of children I was taking care of in my early 20s. So after what was supposed to be our last child, baby number four, was born, I did go back to school for sign language interpreting. And I did that until my kids began homeschooling, which we did for about a decade. And right when that stopped is when I started podcasting. So I've just never gone back to school to finish. And I've never held like a real job other than um, I bust tables for three months when I was a teenager. And other than that, it's always been like babysitting type jobs where I've made money. And yeah, now podcasting. That's like I have no I have no background. My resume is just my name at the top and a blank sheet of paper after that. So I will say, though, when I started podcasting, I was listening to almost only true crime podcasts. I'm really interested in the law. And so it made sense to blend them together into a hobby, which is what podcasting really was for me at the start. But because I don't have much of an educational background in any of this, I do spend a lot of time researching for the podcast so that I'm not spouting off ignorant statements. In January, though, I will be presenting a case that I actually do have a background on, and I realized how much easier it is to do the work when you already know the information. And that has to do with sign language, because my last major in school and the one that I went to for the longest was sign language interpreting. So that will be coming in January. So as for the question about my clear speech and enunciation, you know, when I don't have a cold like right now, that comes from not enunciating in the beginning and people telling me I wasn't speaking correctly. I don't sound like this in conversation, I promise you. But when people only have my voice and it's often directly in their ear through earbuds, I know that it's important to be clear because the little quirks of speech can be super annoying when the entire format is audio. I will say I did consult with my son's speech therapist one time. I wanted to know if there was a way I could train myself to be less nasally because we were getting those comments on insight. Now, I sound nasally right now because I'm getting over a cold, but the speech therapist told me that is not what's going on here. So she said what people are hearing that they think is me being too nasal is actually something else, and it's just how I sound. Aside from learning how to do character voices, it's not something that you fix. It's not something going away. Everyone's voice sounds the way it does, and while there are things you can change, other than taking on a fake voice, this isn't something I can change. I don't know if it's anatomy. I don't know what it is. It just has to be a take-it-or-leave-it situation for the listener. And if you are someone who had to push through until you got used to my voice, I do appreciate it because while it is easy for me and other podcasters to get defensive when people make comments about our voices, I get it. I'm in your ear. If you can't enjoy this experience or at least tolerate it, then this podcast isn't for you. So if you decided the information I was giving and the cases I cover are worth it to learn to accept my voice, I do genuinely appreciate that. Okay, so we're going to talk less abstractly 
about How I Podcast, and much more specifically, two crime lines behind the scenes. This is the nitty-gritty. Now, Charlene asked about my process from suggestion to recording, and September and Laura asked about how long various steps take. I'm going to get into the details with this, and then we'll get into questions about the oversaturated true crime market and how I manage to podcast and make money. If none of this interests you, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with a case. So, for the four of you still listening, to make a Crime Lines episode, I start with my suggestion list. I have a very long suggestion list where I add cases I've either come across that I'm interested in, but mostly I've stopped adding my own because listener suggestions come in so frequently that the list is growing faster than I could ever start crossing things off. I've used a number of ways to pick the cases, including using a random number generator to choose for me. Sometimes it is hard when you have 300 cases to say that's the one I want to cover. In late November, I did do a live stream where I had the $5 and up tiers on Patreon help me pick January's cases. I just put together a list of ones I was thinking of and felt would have enough information for 30 to 60 minutes of content and they chose the four. I will probably keep doing that because it was actually really helpful to have a small focus group of listeners to help pick cases. I will say not all podcasts have to be 30 to 60 minutes. 20-minute episodes are important too. And so if your podcast is going to cover shorter cases, you don't have to do as much looking up for resources before you even get it on your schedule like I do. A lot of times I can tell if the episode will be long enough if it has a Charlie project or a Wikipedia write-up that are long for that form, then I know there's a lot more information out there. If I look it up on the Charlie project and it's like a paragraph, I know I'm probably not going to find much more than that. Now, the next step is to research the case and then do all the pre-writing, which basically means organizing the information. That usually takes me one full workday at least and two for longer episodes, the researching and the organizing. I almost always start with the newspaper archives on newspapers.com because that lets me search day by day and I can follow the case as it unfolded in the news more or less. If I know it went to trial or there was an arrest, I'll pull any documents that I can find online from websites like Case Law, Justia, Scribd, and Document Cloud. Those are four I almost always go to. Depending on the state, I will also do a court lookup there. After that, I will look for articles that are available on Google. These are mostly from news stations, but occasionally the case will have a website that also has additional information. Then I go to any book on the case. And you might think that a book on the case would be so comprehensive that why wouldn't I just use that first and save myself all this other time? But I can't do that because that would be plagiarism. Over-reliance on a single source is plagiarism. If I'm just summarizing a book, why am I even here? You can get an Audible account and just listen to the book yourself. I only use books to get details I cannot find elsewhere. For instance, I have an episode coming out in January with an excellent book on the case. I'm going to encourage everyone to read it because it covers a lot of information and issues I'm not even going to get into. And one of the reasons I won't get into them is because that's the author's work. 
If you want to consume his work, you should go to him, not to me. A book report does not a podcast make. But I did use this book to get some background information on the victims that I couldn't find elsewhere, as well as specific information from trial testimony that I also couldn't find in any articles. Of this book, which is between 200 and 300 pages, I pulled out a couple paragraphs of information. Now, after I do all of this, I will watch any forensic files or snapped episode I have access to or on the case with Paula Zahn or whatever show has an episode about the case because there are usually some very interesting details in those interviews that I can't find elsewhere. But these sources should always be supplementary or supplementary. How do you say that word? I don't know. Anyway, don't base your podcast on these shows because some of them knowingly change how things happened. They'll reorganize how things occurred so that they can build suspense like a fiction show. They want to do a slow reveal of the police solving the case, like the police were on the wrong track and then suddenly they got the break they needed. I saw one killer couples episode where they said the police interviewed the guy, did more investigation, and then went back to him days later when they had new information and asked him about it. And that never happened. The suspect lawyered up after one interview, and he told them all of the information in that interview. They withheld it in the episode and played around with the timeline to make it look like the suspect was cleared until this breakthrough information. In reality, the police had it within hours of the murder. This creative license information will then get repeated in blogs and on podcasts because of surface-level research. Now, if that's what the show's about, the show is a primer on the case. They are telling you up front they're not really an in-depth show. That's fine. Not every podcast has to be a deep dive. The process I am outlining today is the way I do things, and I definitely don't want to say it's the only way to do things, except the plagiarism thing. There's, there's no room for discussion there. But even with these shows playing with the timeline and the facts, to be honest, it's still good to watch these for those interviews. They will often interview family members, police, people who are really in the nitty-gritty of the investigation, and those interviews are definitely worth it. Just whatever the narrator says, just kind of ignore that part. And as I'm taking my notes from all of these various sources, I list the source at the top of the page and then write the notes immediately under it. Then I write the next source and write my notes immediately under it. That way, if I go back later and I'm confused about what I wrote or my brain didn't retain the full context of it, I can go back and find it again. Now, at this point in the process, I have all my research done, all my notes typed up. I already have a very good idea of the case, obviously. So I open a new document and I type up a quick outline of the order I plan to present the information. The show is called Crimelines because of the play on the word timelines. We're following the case, more or less the order it happened. I do reorder things, withhold information a little bit for the sake of storytelling, but the outline is generally a timeline, and that's the easiest part. I also list on the outline any background or extra issues I want to discuss, like the history of a tribe if it's an MMIW case, the explanation of the DNA if that's relevant. I don't research those just yet. I focus on the case. 
at once. And then after that, I go back and research those things. I copy and paste my notes from my research document into the outline in the proper place. I go back, I research any issues or history I plan to use and get those notes on the outline. And this is, like I said, a shorter episode, like a Patreon, you know, 20, 30 minute episode. I can usually knock this out in one solid workday, which is, you know, six hours. Though sometimes it will bleed into the next day, depending on how focused I was the day before and also how much information there is. These longer episodes obviously take more time. And the ones where I have to do a lot more research. While the MMIW episodes tend to be shorter, they're, you know, anywhere from 25 to 40 minutes, I actually spend way more time researching those than some of the more straightforward cases because of all that history. Even if I'm only giving you a few minutes of the history, I had to make sure I learned it and understood it before I could then repeat it. That takes time. It all depends, but I would say research and pre-writing probably take me anywhere from six to 10 hours. I then start writing and I do my first draft from my finished outline. I find it's very important to write from my notes and not directly from the sources so that I can avoid plagiarism. After this first draft is done, which takes anywhere from five to eight hours, I put it away and I let it sit there and I ignore it. I then spend time working on researching the next project I have coming up. Pretty much anything to get my brain to forget half of what I just wrote. Then the day before I plan to record, I do the rewrite. I pull out the first draft that has been sitting there, ignored. I spend about two to three hours rewriting the script. The point in letting it sit is that when I go to rewrite it, I will often come across something that doesn't actually make sense, or I have an inconsistent date in there, or I presented something out of order. And if the case was fresh in my mind, I likely would have skimmed right past that and it wouldn't click. But by getting it out of my head and coming to it as fresh as I can, I have to then really process the information, and I'm processing it much more the way the listener would. Another thing I do is I rewrite the script by reading it out loud, because that's also how the listener will experience it. That's when I catch awkward sentences, repetitive word usage, words I actually can't pronounce. I mean, enough of those make it in because I can't avoid it, But there are other words that I just will stumble over, or if they're in a particular sentence, I just can't get that sentence out, and I just need to rewrite it. So once I finish that, I go and I record either that day. Often I'll do it the next day. I know most people record straight through and edit out any mess-ups or mistakes after when they edit. I actually stop while I'm recording, and I edit out the mess-ups as I go. I started doing this because I wanted to make editing go faster because I really don't like editing, but it does make the recording take longer. So an hour-long episode is going to take me an hour and a half to record it, if not two hours. But I do feel like I get a cleaner end product doing it this way, so it's how I do it. My next step is to proof listen. This is when I catch anything I need to re-record because I misspoke, my grammar was messy, or whatever. I find it's really important to do this as soon as possible so that when I re-record any of those parts, I sound the same. Your voice changes day by day based on, like right now, sickness, 
how much water you drank, how much caffeine you've had. Your vocal cords are a lot more sensitive to change than you think they are. If you've never recorded your voice, you probably haven't even noticed the tiny changes day to day. So to me, it's important to re-record so it doesn't sound like I dropped a new clip in there and jars you out of, out of the immersion of the story. Since July of this year, 2021, I have been then sending the episode to an editor to polish it and generate a transcript. Because of how long I spent pre-editing this episode before I even send it to the editor, I don't know that the editor is really worth the expense at this point. I may just go back to editing it myself because I'm not entirely sure it's saving me that much time. I did edit almost all of the 12 Days of Crime Lines episodes myself, and if I can do that with only a few hiccups, I think I could do a once-a-week episode really cleanly. So now, if you record your podcast straight through and you have to edit out mess-ups, you can expect it to take two to three times longer than the raw audio to edit. So if you're new to it, budget three hours for a one-hour episode. You will get faster as you practice, and depending on the software you use, the free ones take a little bit more time. If you have the money to invest, I use Hindenburg. It's very quick to edit in. I, I can't believe I used anything else. Once you finish editing, you do have to proof listen to your complete episode to make sure it's good to publish. You can listen on two times speed because really all you're doing is checking for any glaring errors, like leaving a sentence in twice. Now, I once published an episode of Rusty Hinges with an entire track muted. So, you know, you don't want to do that. All told, making an episode of Crime Lines takes me between 15 and 20 hours. A few take longer than that and a few shorter. But it's because I've been doing it for so many years, I'm actually pretty quick at it. It used to take me more time to produce less content on Insight. So when you start, if you do something like Crime Lines, where it's a deep dive, clean editing, no banter to fill your time, you're looking at probably 20 hours and up. You will get faster and move closer to that 15-hour mark. If you are doing shorter episodes, you can probably get those out a lot faster. You'll notice a lot of the podcasts, the smaller ones that have day jobs and it's a solo host, they do put out 20 to 30-minute episodes because that's what fits into their schedule. And that's totally fine. Like I said, not everything has to be a deep dive. Another thing you can do to make it a little bit easier on yourself is don't go weekly. There is absolutely nothing wrong with an every other week show. Canadian true crime has been around for years, is wildly successful, and is still a twice a month show. Weekly is not a requirement by any stretch. Now, since I'm spending 15 to 20 hours on a weekly episode, it sounds like I can fit other things in. A work week is 36 to 40 hours, but the truth is I only think I can. And that probably is the best answer I can give to Alexis's question if there was anything I wish more people knew about podcasting. And I can really only speak from crime lines and how I do things here. I wish people understood that my process may take fewer hours than you thought but it actually takes way more work. The amount of consuming information, note-taking, processing of information, writing and rewriting, it's all very intense. Even if I can crank out an episode in two or three workdays, it doesn't mean I can sustain that 
day after day and still function elsewhere in my life. One of the first things a lot of big podcasts do, I'm sure you've noticed it, is they hire a researcher. I mean, some of them don't credit their researchers, but a lot of them use them even if they don't credit them. Some even hire ghostwriters, some hire credited writers, and they become more or less the voiceover talent, the storyteller for their podcast. Now, I have tried using researchers, but my writing process for the deep dives of crime lines is just way too wrapped up in the research process. I cannot deliver the same content and the same depth unless I just do it all myself. I just don't see a time where I'm going to be regularly using researchers again for crime lines. The exception is if I got back into doing video content. I would hire researchers for that because that would fit with what I'm doing over in the video side. So if you think about the average length of a novel being 70,000 words, in 10 weeks of creating crime lines, I've written that much. And then I do it again and again and again. It's a lot of brain power, and it really stretches my executive function to its maximum capacity, which, if we're being honest, isn't saying a whole lot. I make six episodes of Crime Lines a month, if you're counting regular releases and then Patreon bonus content. So that takes a lot of effort. It does leave me with some open time. And I did fill those hours and then some with the live streams and the YouTube videos and writing for other podcasts. I've done one, two, or all three of those things for the first two and a half years I made Crime Lines. And I think I'm more or less just done with all of that. I really like doing all those things, which is what makes it so hard to give them up. But like I said, impacts the quality of my work. I was looking at it as diversifying, but it ended up diluting, and it also burned me out. So I'm making worse content and being more exhausted while doing so, and that's just ridiculous. I am hoping to get back into doing some casual live streams because I do like interacting with the audience on a personal level. Not sure how those are going to work since making a whole other episode to present in a live stream just as part of the the burnout factor there. And I'm not really looking into doing that anymore, but I'll figure it out. Hopefully, live streams will be coming back in some form in the future. Sasha asked me if the true crime podcasting landscape is difficult to navigate as it's become progressively more saturated, and if the growth and popularity of true crime podcasts has changed my approach at all. So as for navigating a saturated genre, the first part of that question, I will say that I'd really hate to get started now. There are so many shows out there. There are new ones coming and going constantly. Some of them I don't even hear about until they announce they're ending their show. It's just hard to find an audience. People have their tried and trues. So I don't blame anyone who gets into podcasting and then walks away because they're just not finding the growth they hoped for. There was a time where the podcast audience was growing faster than the number of true crime content creators. My old podcast, Insight, wouldn't even make it today because you have to hit the ground running, sounding way more polished than we sounded for at least half of our run. I get asked by new podcasters all the time about discoverability and marketing their show, and aside from building a time machine and going back to when it was Gen Y and Dan Zupanski, I don't really have good advice. A number of you listening right now are here because five years ago, you found my old show, Insight, and you were stuck for want of better content. 
And now, even as an established show producing solid content week after week with a large back catalog, I still find it hard to attract new listeners and stand out in a saturated genre. And that's exactly how it influences how I approach things. It made me realize that I needed to find out what made Crime Line stand out, what I did well here, and just lean into that hard. A general topic true crime show will just really struggle to find a place. There are a lot of people making shows like this. A lot of them are doing it much better than I am doing it. They're doing it better than I can do it. And there are a lot of people who have more traditional radio-friendly voices or whatever it is that gets them to stand out that I cannot achieve. I cannot get myself there. So I have to focus on what I can do and what I do well. And what I've heard from people is that they like my straightforward timeline-based storytelling. So we're going to keep that going. They like when I keep things on track, but also conversational. doesn't sound like I'm reading a book report. We're going to keep doing that. They like when I give some commentary, but not when I fill the episode with too many opinions every few minutes. They like when a little bit of my personality comes through. It helps with the conversational tone. So these are the things I'm mindful of when I am creating an episode. I do also feel a responsibility as an established show to be a good example for new shows since there are so many of them and there is no handbook how to navigate this. There are so many shows coming up who are inspired by podcasts who take their info from Wikipedia or have had issues with plagiarism or who speculate wildly and accuse people of murder in their theory section. And these new podcasters are really getting the wrong idea of what is ethical in the podcast space. I know they get this impression because I've literally had podcasters tell me this. They've told me they didn't know X, Y, and Z was wrong because so-and-so does it. And look at them. They're at the top of the charts. They're selling out live shows. If they're doing it and having all the success, then surely it's okay. And you know what? Sometimes things are not okay, even if it is seemingly being rewarded. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to hold myself up as best practices. I don't know what I don't know, and that's a lot. I was recently sent an article about discussing car crashes and how that influences perception. I had no idea, even though the information is available in the AP Style Guide. I had someone else talk to me about how I use clean when I mean sober and why they would rather I choose a different word. I had an entire phone call with someone about the origins of anglicizing the name of an indigenous group in Alaska. I've had countless conversations. Over the last six years about content warnings slash disclaimers in episodes, no one should look to me for all of the answers because my listeners are the ones who help me keep my stuff straight and correct me when I'm getting it wrong. But I do hope I'm a podcaster that other podcasters, newer podcasters, feel they can go to if they do have an ethical dilemma or they don't know how to handle a sensitive topic or they get pushback over something. I would like to be a resource for them. My door is always open. That does make me think of something I wish I could help new podcasters with that I've struggled to be able to help them with. This is a little off topic, but most of this episode has been a rambly mess, so we're here for it. Let's just, again, lean into what's working. I wish I could help 
new podcasters and experienced podcasters with not just avoiding saying the wrong thing, but how to own it when you do. We have to be ready to take it. It's uncomfortable to accept that we did something wrong. It can hurt us when someone isn't kind in how they express that to us. But what we are feeling is probably never at the same level as the group we impacted. And when we are working in true crime, I think that goes doubly because that impact can hurt people who are already hurting. It's okay to feel defensive, upset, offended, hurt, embarrassed when you're criticized. But I'm just going to say it. It is rare that us, the podcasters, are the victims in the situation. And we need to keep that in mind when we address things. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Cassie said she likes hearing behind-the-scenes bits, like little ones, like how I mentioned I have to turn the heat off when I record and I freeze my family out. And that's actually something that Aaron from the Generation Y brought up to me a couple of months ago. We were talking about TikTok, which they have a great TikTok account you should check out. And I just said I didn't have the time for it. But he was telling me that all these behind-the-scenes tidbits and podcast advice that I already put out on Twitter that I'm already talking to people about, makes good TikTok content because it's so short form. He said that I had tweeted out an article a while back about how to discuss suicide in the media, and he saved it and still refers to it. That information could find a wider and new audience on TikTok. So even as I have said that I'm going to focus primarily on the podcast, I do think the TikTok content Maybe something I could do in 2022 because it's a way to put out more content that isn't so high effort and it will help share what I learned. So that is something I may be pursuing in the new year. So, okay, now here we are at the question about finances. Alexandra falls into the aspiring podcaster category and she asked very politely how I actually make money podcasting. I pretty much make money through ads and Patreon. I book my ads through an ad agency called AdvertiseCast. Anyone can sign on with them if you have a certain number of downloads, but I'm contracted with them. I'm an exclusive podcast on their platform, so people can only book through them. And they handle all those ads where my voice is heard. In the ads of pre-recorded content, like those McDonald's ads or whatever you hear, those are through the platform I host my podcast on, which is called Megaphone. I do use it through AdvertiseCast, so they're the ones who basically pay me out from that. But there are also platforms like Spreaker where you can put your show on. I think it's $8 a month is their package where you can then put those pre-recorded ads in your episodes. And that is a good way to make money without a whole lot of extra effort. I will tell you those pre-recorded ads, unless you have a lot of listeners, they're really not paying very well. When you do have a lot of listeners or you have a big back catalog and you're getting thousands and thousands of downloads on old episodes, I mean, it really adds up. I've been surprised at how much I make on those. The ads in my voice do pay more than those ads. And then the ads that pay the most are the feed drops where you will open the app. It looks like you have a new episode from Crime Lines, but it's me introducing another show. So let me explain how I make all of this ad stuff work and how I balance it. 
I don't like running a ton of ads on my show. I obviously run them because that is how I get compensated for my work. But I generally only do one mid-roll ad break, like cuts in the middle of a story, unless the episode is nearing or exceeding an hour. Sometimes I'll put a second one in there. This is incredibly unusual in the industry. If you are a podcast of my size with as many ad offers as I have, an hour-long episode will often have at least two, if not three, breaks. But I don't like that many breaks. I, as a listener, don't like that many breaks. So I balance that by doing those feed drops. So those, you know, introducing whatever show, those pay really well. So... I know it is annoying to wake up and see five of your podcasts all dropped a new episode, but then you look and they're all ads. I get that. But as a listener, I find that less annoying than being wrapped up in the story and hearing an ad break. So I run more feed drops and then less ad breaks. Does that make sense? I know some podcasts do tons of mid-roll ads. They do the feed drops. They do everything else. And I say, good for them. Just because limited ads is what works for me and my audience doesn't mean I'm saying it's the right way or the only way to do it. They're all making a lot more money than me, so if I tried to get on a high horse over this, it would have to be a really cheap one. Patreon is my other source of income. I do also offer my tiers lower than most have recommended to me because, again, I want to find the balance between bringing in revenue, compensating myself for the time I spend making the show, while also keeping it accessible for my listeners. I know not everyone can afford $3 a month, which is the tier that gets you one bonus episode and ad-free episodes. I know not everyone can afford that, but a lot more people can afford that than can afford $10 a month. And do I really need that extra $7 a month? I mean, probably because I do have six children, but thankfully my income isn't the only one that supports them. Okay, so that is basically how I do things. I have ads and I have Patreon. Because this question did come from someone who wants to get into podcasting, I do want to give a little bit of a caution about Patreon. It's very easy to start a Patreon and get really excited about offering all these perks and bonus content. But you need to slow down. You need to make sure your main content and your audience is growing. Do you really need to be creating an extra episode a month for? 10 people? Or would it better serve your show to put that extra episode in your main feed, which will grow your overall audience? In podcasting, there is this odd protection over numbers. People don't discuss their downloads or their money or whatever. And I get not discussing your money, but what's the big deal about discussing your downloads? So I'm going to talk numbers with you because I think it'll illustrate the Patreon issue best. An episode of Crimelines, after it has been out for 60 days, gets around 50,000 downloads on average. Now, I bill my ads at 41,000 impressions because that's what I can guarantee after 30 days. That is like the absolute minimum everyone went on vacation and didn't commute to work numbers is 41,000 after 30 days. When we get to 60 days, we're talking around 50,000 downloads on average. Patreon, I don't even have 600 Patreon supporters. 50,000 downloads, 600 Patreon supporters. Now, this is not a conversation for the people listening who don't support me on Patreon. I'm not saying anything about that. 
There are lots of reasons not to support me on Patreon. One, I have tons of free content. Enjoy it. Two, Patreon's interface is unbelievably poorly designed. Totally get it. Number three, again, free content. Take the free content. I'm just talking about these numbers because I want to illustrate something for podcasters. Some shows do manage to get a higher conversion rate. Most won't go over 5% of their audience. Some don't even hit 1%. So look at your audience, figure out about 1% to 3% of them, and decide if you are at the point where it's worth putting out extra content and a whole lot of extra effort into that size of a group, or if all that energy, all that time, the extra content would be better served growing your audience base. I'm not saying don't start the Patreon. I'm just saying don't overcommit to providing perks too soon. Patreon can 100% be run like a tip jar. My Patreon is pretty transactional. You give me money, I give you these extra things. But it doesn't have to be that way. I also offer PayPal and Venmo if people do just want to send me a tip and buy me a coffee. And a lot of people have taken advantage of that. And I'm very thankful for that. I give thank you shout outs, but that's pretty much the only perk. You can use Patreon that way where you give a thank you shout out, but you don't have to do all the extra until you have built your main audience. Okay. So we're at the end of this long Q&A. I clearly have a lot of thoughts and a lot of details and a lot of information I could be giving you. I could keep going. I have had to cut myself off after certain questions because I would just keep going. If I did not read your question, I am sorry. I thought I grabbed all of them, but it's always possible there was one or two I didn't see. But I want to end this a little bit on a light note. CN asked if the podcast was an animal, what animal would it be? And I have to go with a dolphin. The show is smart. It's curious. It's happiest in a group of other pods. And also, when I try to pronounce unfamiliar names and places, dolphin noises are a pretty good comparison for what actually comes out of my mouth. So I want to thank everyone for a wonderful 2021. I will be back next week with the first Crime Lines episode of 2022.